All right. Sorry for the delay. <laughs> Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we'll look at uh, verse 19 through 39 tonight. And as a reminder, kiddos, uh, a couple of the key words for tonight, covenant, judgment. We're going to talk about those types of things, so you can be listening for that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39. These are the words of God. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the, far, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we ask that as we open your word, you would open our minds and our hearts. We seek illumination, understanding, and uh, we also know that without your Spirit giving it, uh, that we won't have it. And so we need help. Grant us understanding, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 So uh, we are continuing our study of Hebrews outside the camp. And this is, if you've been counting, maybe you haven't, but this is actually our 14th um, message of the series. So we're probably going to end up with around 
roughly 22, uh, depending on um, how, how that goes. And so now we arrive at the end of a very, very long argument that has spanned uh, several chapters. Now, if you recall, it was all the way back in chapter 5 uh, when the writer brought up the issue of Melchizedek, the priest Melchizedek. He was a king and a priest. Um, he brought up the issue of Christ's office as high priest, and then he paused to talk about Christian maturity and the need to be able to discern between good and evil. And then he came back to the issue of priesthood at the end of chapter 6. So from chapter 7 onward, we're now into chapter 10, from 7 onward, the argument has centered on Jesus as the true and better high priest, um, the nature of the new covenant established by his blood, and what all of that means for the believer. That, that's the issue at play here. So the issue of the new covenant and Jesus' relationship with the old economy, sacrificial system, the temple, and the priesthood and all that, all of that serves as the central focus of the book of Hebrews. Um, he, Hebrews is, you know, this sort of, uh, it's blood and gory type talk, because there's a lot of talk about blood and, and covenant and so on. Now, the reason for this is very simple, so listen carefully, uh, so you can kind of pull it all together. In order for this new Israel to follow the new Joshua into the new promised land, they needed a firm theological foundation. That's Hebrews. In order for the the new Israel to follow the new Joshua into the new promised land, they had to have this foundation. So in order to successfully carry out the marching orders of who we'll call General Joshua 2.0, that's Jesus, and his great commission, they had to have a proper understanding of not only Christ's kingship, but his priesthood as well. And all of that is, is tied together in Christ's atonement, which serves as the backbone of our faith and our obedience. And so now we're at the end of chapter 10, which sort of just ties it all together, brings it all together. Jesus is a high priest. Jesus is also king. As we talked about last week, he's the exclusive priest king, which means that there are no others. Now, that means something in the here and now. This isn't, for us, this isn't just, you know, pie-in-the-sky theological, you know, uh, abstractions and and so on and so forth. There are real-time historical consequences of the gospel message. And a lot of times it doesn't get taught that way or preached that way. It's just sort of... You know, we joke sometimes, Lucas, right, it's this, um, uh, the, the atonement coalition, because we just limit the gospel to Jesus died for me, and so I get to go to heaven. And that's a beautiful truth, but it's only a fraction of the truth. It's only a small piece of the pie. The gospel itself has real historical consequences. So notice I said historical, as in history, real life stuff. The gospel has ramifications for here And now, it doesn't just have eternal consequences. It has present consequences. So it's the actual, material, earthly, periodic table sort of consequences. Now, when one is put into a position, there are responsibilities that follow that position. If you are given a task, you are put into a position, whether it's a job or what have you, it's, it follows that there are responsibilities that come with it. There are strings attached. No one hires you for a job and says, 
oh, we don't need you to do anything. We'll just pay you. That's not how it works. So we talk about faith for all of life because faith isn't a mere abstraction. It's boots on the ground work. So, so when you are conscripted and brought into Christ's army, that's the church, you have duties, you have obligations, there are stipulations, there are detailed expectations of what that looks like, there are moral imperatives for you to adhere to, um, and there are indisputable commitments. So when you come to Christ, or rather when the Spirit makes you come to Christ, uh, you, you're coming with... There are things that come with that. There are stipulations. There are commitments that are attached to that position. Which means that when Christians see their faith as something that puts them to work in the world, the world around us is changed. But when Christians fail to see this, the world just sort of swallows them up, engulfs them, and they serve no real meaningful historical purpose. So, so all of this, you might say, is a matter of social theory. How, how, how do we do society? How do we do culture? Um, the gospel gives us present social structures and institutions which govern all of our dealings, whether it's economics or education or taxation and so on. Um, the kingdom of God, properly assessed, properly understood, and properly lived within and abided by, creates a culture that touches everything. So we, we hit on that a lot here. I mean, it's on the front of our bulletin every single time. What, what is our purpose? So that you can know that and hear it, and hopefully you're not bored with it, but challenged by it, reminded by it. And I'll say all that again. The kingdom of God, properly understood, properly assessed, and properly lived, properly lived within and abided by, creates a culture. It creates something that touches every single area of life. So we gather, we sing, we you know, study God's Word together, and, 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 but that's just one aspect. For most Christians, that's the entirety of their experience. That's the entirety of their life. We show up on Sunday mornings. Maybe if there's a potluck, we'll be lucky, right? And then we, and then we just ride the train to the next Sunday. And then Monday through Saturday is totally divorced from, from the Christian experience. But we say that we're building a culture because that's, that's what we're doing. That's what, what happens when you are brought into Christ's army. If you're not doing that, which is the majority of evangelical churches, then there's a problem. So, yes, we have an atonement that makes you right with God. Yes, we have an atonement that purifies and sanctifies, an atonement that gets you to heaven, or more appropriately, heaven gets to you. But what, off, what we often miss is the fact that we also have an atonement that gives us a coherent social theory that actually matters for all things pertaining to every area of a man's life. So try to follow that. We, we have an atonement that saves. Yes, we have an atonement that sanctifies. We have all those things, but we also have an atonement that gives us a whole lot more. It gives us a social theory that touches everything. Now, this is because the New Covenant is built on better promises, and what most people forget is the fact that it's a covenant. Now, you might define a covenant this way. It's, it's simply a, a binding agreement with terms and conditions. It's, an, it's a binding um, blood oath, um, concealed by oath, ratified by oath, that has you know, stipulations, um, has terms and conditions to it. 
So we forget all of that. You know, we celebrate Good Friday. Yay, Jesus died for me. And, and then we just forget it. There are stipulations, there are terms and conditions, because the new covenant is it's a covenant. Now, what we'll see today is the covenant judgment. That's what I'm calling this message, the covenant judgment. Those are the key words. So we're going to just work through the passage. We're going to see the blessings and cursings involved in this covenant. And the reason we'll see it here and other places in the New Testament is because, again, the new covenant is a covenant. It, it has a lot of baggage with it. And what do covenants do? Well, here's what covenants do. Covenants outline the role of the sovereign. Okay, who's, who's in charge? The role of the sovereign. The role of the subordinate. So that's us. God's sovereign, we're the subordinate. And sometimes we flip that, right? We are sovereign and God is subordinate. But that would be um, listening to the devil whisper in your ear, did God really say So it outlines the role of the sovereign, the role of the subordinate. It it also outlines the stipulation of the covenant law, what are the ethics associated to to this covenant, this agreement. It also outlines the sanctions involved in violating the law. What happens if you don't obey the sovereign? What happens if you choose to create your own set of laws and so on? And then lastly, it it outlines the future of the people who obey it or disobey it. So this is consistent throughout all of Scripture, and it is absolutely consistent with the New Covenant as well. And if you want to see sort of this uh, picturesque moment of what covenant judgment is, read the book of Revelation, (laughs) and you will see it on full display. So let's go ahead and look at our passage, kind of walk through it, and you'll see what I mean. In verses 19 through 25, that's the first section here, the writer comes to several conclusions. So in light of what's all been said about Jesus as priest, Christ is seated as our ruling and reigning king, Christ's blood providing forgiveness and consecration, in light of all of that, we can have confidence. Confidence, verse 19 says, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus' work, we have this new and living way, the text says, which has been inaugurated. And this way is his body, which was broken for his people, and it is the veil of heaven. The way we get behind the veil, remember Jesus is the anchor that holds within the veil. The way we get to that and into heaven and Christ's priesthood, that is now open. Verse 20. He is our great priest over the house of that God is building. Verse 21. And so now we have something to do. The next four verses now give us four different instructions rooted in three core Christian virtues. So I want you to see that in the text. Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean and because of baptism, the washing with pure water, we are told then to draw near, this is verse 22, with a sincere or true heart and full assurance of faith. So that's the first thing you're told. Draw near. Because of all that's been said in the past three or four chapters, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to draw near. And that's not the first time the writer has said that. Second, we are told to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And we can do this because he who promised is faithful. Verse 23. Uh, Notice the train of thought. God is faithful to his people, 
so we can hold fast. God is faithful. That's that's why we are black coffee Calvinists, because no one can take us out of the Father's hand. And you get the snarky Arminian who says, well, we can jump out. No. <laughs> no, you can't. You, you, we'll get into apostasy later, but you can re- you really do that. Um, but for us, God is faithful. That's where all of this is rested in him. So we can hold fast to him because he's faithful. Third, we ought to consider how to stimulate or energize one another to love and good deeds. Verse 24, right? So when we're tempted to, to slander someone or gossip or, you know, all these things, we should actually consider how to energize someone towards love and good deeds. Fourth, we shouldn't forsake the assembling together, so instead of forsaking, we should encourage one another. Verse 25. So those are the four things, and I'm going to explain the last one especially because it's been misused in a lot of ways. One is draw near. That's what we're told. Hold fast. Number two, draw near, hold fast, stimulate one another or energize one another towards love and good deeds. Fourth, not forsaking but encouraging. Now, the Christian virtues listed are similar to what Paul says elsewhere. Look at, look at your text. We have faith in verse 22. Notice that. You see the word faith? We have hope in verse 23. And we also have love in verse 24. So hope, hope gives legs to faith, and then love makes it all run efficiently. Now, a few comments are in order. <laughs> we are instructed to exercise faith, have hope, and energize towards love. Now, the reason for all of it is because of the fact that when we exercise hope, we do so because we have a future. We have a future in Christ as the gospel progresses in the world. Now, contrary to what is normally taught in in our pulpits, the gospel will advance and the gospel will be successful. But, But when men and women lose hope or they channel their hope somewhere else, right, there's a lot of people really banking on the rapture. They, so they're channeling their hope somewhere else. When we do that, the future becomes quite bleak. So if we won't draw near with true hearts, you know, true hearts because we're truly human, if we won't hold fast our confession of hope, if we, won't, if we refuse to consider how to energize each other towards love and good deeds, then if all that's forsaken, then we might forsake the assembly. And when we do that, everything gets jammed up. So the reality is, all of us in this room need something. We need encouragement. None of us in this room uh, can ever say that our encouragement tanks are full. Right? You walk through the door, oh, I'm fine. I don't need any more encouragement today. I've had plenty. So don't say anything nice to me. No one says that. And and this is tied together um, with verse 25, which again has been sadly abused in churches today. So you've heard this phrase, forsaking the assembly. And sometimes we joke about it if someone's gone, you know, why are you forsaking the assembly, bro? Sort of just this cheeky way of saying, where were you? Why were you not in attendance at our service? Now, in the early church, persecution was a very real and present thing, especially when this letter was written. On the precipice of this great Jewish war of AD 66 to 70, Hebrews was written right up leading up to that. 
And it was written to people who were facing imminent danger, real and present imminent danger. Christians were being persecuted all over the Roman Empire, and there, there was a temptation to sort of just shrink back from your faith, to just hide it, to, to not live the ramifications of it. There was a temptation to disavow Christ, and one of the ways that a person would disavow Christ was forsaking the assembly. So this is not a verse urging us to make sure our butt's in the pew every single week, though we are the assembly of the way. That's what the word church, the ecclesia is. And we do assemble here for public worship, and we sing, and we do all those things. Yes. But that's not what this verse is, should be used for. This is a verse about people turning away from the confession we are supposed to hold fast to. So instead of spurring one another on, there were people who had forsaken their Christian brothers and sisters. They had, they had walked away from them. That, that, that was how they uh, disavowed their allegiance to Christ. So, so this text is actually about apostasy from the visible church, completely and utterly. And it's tied to the next section, which has to do with Jewish Christians who were going back to the temple system. So... That would be a proof text verse that would not be appropriate to you know, criticize someone who maybe they missed a Sunday or two um, or three, whatever it is. Oh, you're forsaking the assembly. Well, it's the same thing people criticize abolitionists for all the time, and it's just a bunch of garbage. Um, because I, I would argue that the work that abolitionists like us, that we do... <laughs> We are absolutely not forsaking the assembly. We are loving the assembly in ways that many don't. So having shown the blessings then of the covenant, the blessings of spurring one another on and drawing near to Christ and all those blessings that are associated, now we're going to see the cursings of it. We read in verse 26 to 27 that if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for you. Look at verse 26. He says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire, which will consume the adversaries. So here's how you should read that verse. Okay. Because this gets ripped out of context too. Here's how you should read it. If we sin willfully by going back to the Levitical system, which is in the temple in Jerusalem, after getting all that was just taught to us in the previous chapters, you know, the truth about Christ and how he has put an end to all the sacrifices and the temple stuff, you should know that if you're tempted to go back to there, if you're tempted to go back to Jerusalem in that system, there won't be any sacrifices available to you. Because, why? Because the day that's drawing near, the one we just saw in verse 25, Right, encouraging one another all as you see the day drawing near. That day is not the second coming of Christ. That day is when Jesus comes in judgment and terror, and he brings all of his covenant lawsuits and sanctions. And you should know that Jesus will destroy his adversaries through the Roman armies, and he will not relent until the task is finished. That's how you should read that verse. That's how you should see the context. 
Jewish Christians who had grown to trust the temple and the sacrifices were tempted to go back to that. And he says, if you go back to that, you won't have a sacrifice. The day's drawing near. Christ's judgment is coming upon this temple in this city. It won't be there for you. You won't find it there. You cannot go back. Now, judgment was looming over Israel for her rejection of the Messiah. And, and Jesus had promised its destruction. And, and Jesus will, in fact, demonstrate that he is seated on his throne by coming in judgment against his enemies. Remember, he says to the high priest, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. You will know. You will see that you is not a general second, you know, per, he's saying you, the high priest, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And sure enough, that high priest saw him come on the clouds in judgment. So you can't go back to Jerusalem. You cannot go back to the temple. You cannot go back to the sacrifices therein. And if you do, you should know something else. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, for the past few chapters, it's just been kind of a nice little, here's some doctrinal stuff and and there's some niceties attached to it. This is an absolute covenant judgment. It is a mercy of God to give you his law and find in its provision the requirement of witnesses in order to condemn a criminal. If you set aside, if you set aside this grace of the law, you get an unjust punishment. That's what he's saying here. And if that's the case, we're arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? If that was true with the law of Moses, how much severe punishment awaits those who trample underfoot the Son of God, who malign his blood covenant? Here we have the forsaking of the assembly. This, we have here the issue of apostasy. Real people who name the name of Christ, who threw it all away because the pressure, the heat was turned up, and they walked away. That's what forsaking the assembly is. That's apostasy. Apostasy is, as one theologian has put it, the act of contemptuous rejection, and it rests on a deliberate judgment. No one, no one wakes up and slips on the apostasy rug and thus ruins his life. It doesn't just accidentally happen to you. This person looks at the truth about Christ, decides that in the spirit of our postmodern age, well, that's not true for me. And then he gives himself over to his lust for autonomy. And he calls himself blessed when in fact he is a fool and he is deceived, self-deceived, the worst kind of deception when you don't know that you don't know. Now this process is called a trampling, it's like says, of the blood of Christ. It calls that which cleanses, namely Christ's blood, and he call, it calls it poison. It maligns God. It seeks to usurp his covenant. It blasphemes the Father and insults the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's the thing. Like all, all persons of the Trinity are offended by America <laughs> right now. It's not just, well, Jesus is on his throne and he must not be pleased. They're all upset about it. Like it's not a all everything. When you reject Christ, you have rejected the Father, you have insulted the Spirit, the text says. So 
that sort of mindset calls good evil and evil good. Now, the blood of Christ is the basis of the covenant, right? We've already established that. And so the rejection of the covenant is to malign or blaspheme and disrespect that which God deems to be holy. You're calling something unclean that Jesus has called clean. And when you do this, you can't expect to get through life unscathed. It just won't happen. Apostasy is a real and present threat then, and it is today as well. Let's keep going in our text. The writer makes it clear from the Old Testament writings that vengeance belongs to God and that he will judge his people, verse 30. For covenant breakers and apostates, the text says in verse 31 that it's a fearful thing, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That, that, that verse right there gets rid of the whole Joel Osteen Christianity right there. Because God's just nice. <laughs> no, it's fearful, it's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because judgment is condemnation. Instead of going the route, going that route and incurring God's covenant judgment and his negative sanctions upon you, the writer then, he, he urges them to remember. Remember how things used to be for them. He reminds them of what a covenant keeper looks like and how we are supposed to be demonstrating our covenant faithfulness. So for, for Christians, for covenant keepers, his judgment is remedial. It's sanctifying. It's purifying. But for the covenant breaker, the apostate, It's a judgment of condemnation. So how did they demonstrate their faithfulness in the past? Well, the text tells us, remember the former days. They endured conflict and sufferings. Verse 32, they were made a public spectacle at one point through their suffering. And they even incurred more of it by identifying with those who were treated the same way. Verse 33, they also showed sympathy to those who were in prison, and when their property was seized by the political oppressors, instead of bellyaching and complaining, they saw it as an opportunity for joy. Verse 34. The writer urges them then not to throw away their confidence in Christ because it has a reward. Verse 36. With the threat of judgment looming over Jerusalem, they are promised that Jesus will come and he won't delay. In verse 37. The righteous people live by faith. Those who do not live by faith shrink back. They apostatize from the covenant. They forsake the assembly. They are at odds with God, verse 38. But we are not those who shrink back, verse 39 says. We have faith and our souls are preserved. So that's just kind of a survey of the passage. How do we apply it? What do we do with it? What should be clear from this passage is that Christ's covenant, like all covenants, they have blessing and cursing, positive sanctions, negative sanctions. There is always real-world fallout for our obedience to the covenant, and there are also real repercussions to our disobedience as well. Remember, looming over this passage, and at the time of its writing, was the greatest covenant lawsuit ever brought against men, that being the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, In fact, Jesus says as much, quoting the prophet Isaiah, that nothing else will be anything like this. I'm paraphrasing. This was the covenant lawsuit of the book of Revelation. Jesus promised it would happen, promised that everyone in the land would see it when it came, when he came, and Jesus did in fact come on the clouds and he brought his, his covenantal judgment. Which means that the early Christians who would have received this letter needed to have their theology checked. 
They needed someone to lay it out for them, and Hebrews does just that. But what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you? What might what might you kids learn from this passage? Now, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago and anticipating that we would return to it, and so it needs to be said again. As Christians following Jesus in the world, Jesus being our Joshua, we need to understand that as God's people, as God's people, we are assisting Christ the King in the enforcement of his covenant. Now, I realize the word enforcement carries with it baggage when you think of enforcement. Typically, we think of law enforcement, which is, which is true. Um, but sometimes it kind of comes across a certain way. But we need to know that we are assisting Christ the King in the enforcement of his covenant. We, we have to know this. When we were given this great commission, and it's great for a reason, this whole take the land imperative, um, <laughs> Jesus didn't fail to put a tool in our hands. He didn't, he didn't. So many Christians float along thinking that Jesus gave this task is far too big as if, as if the, how many billions of Christians on this planet now, right? You want to think the task is too big? Try being one of the 11 disciples who were given the commission. You're going to go conquer the world. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Put that in perspective. So many, so many think that the task is too big, and on top of that, he didn't actually give us anything to do, do to, in order to accomplish it. And this is nonsense. The covenant that Jesus, our Joshua, gave us is his covenant, and the terms and the conditions of the covenant are at our disposal. Now, one of the keys, the key components to this covenant enforcement is the law of God. As we've already covered, one of the central purposes of the new covenant was the internalization of the law of God in the hearts of God's people. Um, The law of the covenant is our tool of dominion. It's what we utilize uh, in order to make disciples of nations, which means that Christians who reject the law of God, they are correct. Christians who reject the applicability of the law of God are correct. They don't have any tools because they got rid of them. When we properly understand the relationship between Christ in heaven and his people on earth, we are then forced to come to grips with the fact that we are to utilize the entirety of the law word of God as our primary tool for accomplishing the dominion covenant. So don't don't forget the part of the Great Commission that we often forget most. We must teach the nations to obey Christ, not gather a few souls for heaven, not huddle around and hope for the rapture, teach them to obey Christ. And we have to ask the obvious question. How do we know whether or not nations are obeying Christ? How do you know? How will... <laughs> so we, we, uh, we want to change our county. We want to change Northern Virginia. We want to change this nation, right? That's, that's what we'd like to see happen. Well, how do we know when we can kick back and say, ha ha, we've done it? How, you ever thought of that? Because... How, how will we know when Fauquier County is discipled towards Christ? Well, the answer is pretty simple, right? Their conformity to the covenant. Uh, con- for, for us, we have a pretty stringent measuring stick. And on that list, one of them is abolish government schools. <laughs> so we do have this not just, oh, when everybody's a Christian and, and singing, you know, I'll fly away. That's probably not going to be a great indicator. So are they walking in step with God or not? That's when we'll know. That's when we can kick back and say, all right, abortion is abolished. We're, we've done our work. 
Um, America is a Christianized nation in all senses of the word. We've we've bagged the Constitution, Reasoner rewrote it, and we're good to go. <laughs> no pressure. It's kind of a big task. Now, <laughs> this is why everything is so so messed up in contemporary Christianity here in the West. We, we've developed this muddle-headed idea that developing a coherent social theory and a social order based on Scripture, we think that's a distraction. We think it's a distraction while the real goal is to just preach the gospel. We, we think that standing in the pulpit dispensing milk um, each week, you know, we think that's preaching the gospel to the world. We're discipling the nations because we had two services on Sunday morning. That's what we think. We think that the only way to disciple the nations and teach them to obey Christ is to stay inside the walls of our ministry industrial complex and listen closely to our echo chambers. Now, the the reality is this is the complete opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be building things. We're supposed to produce rival institutions, all of it. We're supposed to be educating our children to do the same thing. Kids, listen up. You have a God-given purpose in your life. You have a purpose for God's kingdom, and your parents' job and your job is to talk about that and help you discover that and cultivate that so that you can grow up and be mature young men and women who are laboring for his kingdom. So you have that. So we're supposed to, instead of doing all that, though, we're more more concerned about sucking on the teat of the state. We have traded our calling to work and keep this God-given world, transforming it into something that resembles the Scriptures. We have traded it for ineptitude and irrelevancy. And, and when we do not think ourselves to be responsible for the way things go in our nation, ask the average Christian, are you responsible for what's going on in this nation? Ask somebody that next time. He is God. Amen. That's true. <laughs> When we don't even think we're responsible for what's going on, it's no wonder God brings his covenant judgment against us. And we have Roe, we have Obergefell, because Christians have given up on God's word and we don't see the connection. Now, one of the things that Christian pastors have failed to preach is the historical sanctions of God's covenant. We've failed to preach it. We've failed to say that God's covenant has real ramifications in history. Notice, again, the word historical. We have done well, quite well, I might add, in remembering the final judgment of Christ. We, we, we do well with that. Right? Jesus, Jesus is coming. He's going to judge the world. And that's the extent of it. What we haven't done well in, however, is laying out the real-world, real-time historical judgments of God against disobedient people. We've left out the fact that God actually controls the weather and He sends hurricanes and tsunamis wherever He wishes. We've left out the fact that economies crumble because God hates unjust weights and measures. We've forgotten that sexuality in the public square, when that runs amok, it's because God is giving us over to our lusts. We've failed to preach the reality of the civil war being a judgment and a scourge upon our nation for our treatment of blacks. Because we have rejected the law of God and the accompanying social order, right, that it produces, we have a whole generation of Christians who cannot discern good and evil and who do not understand the covenant judgment of Christ. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
in the passage before us, there are, there are several quotations from the Old Testament all over the book of Hebrews, but especially in our passage here. And one of them is Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says that vengeance belongs to God. Another one is Psalm 50, verse 4, says that God will judge his people. The other two passages listed at the end of this section here, um, they're, one of them is Isaiah 26, 20, and the other is Habakkuk 2, 3. And both of them reinforce this covenant standard. Um, what these passages do in proving the point of the writer is clarify the reality of God's covenant purposes in history. And, he, and they do it, notice, within the new covenant economy. So many people, they go back and say, the Old Testament, that's how God did things, but the New Testament is so much different. It's nonsense. The writer builds his whole argument of the new covenant upon the old covenant. Quotes the old covenant. You know, there's continuity between the covenants. And so when, when he brings all this together, he does so to demonstrate the fact that in God's covenant judgment, in God's economy, he brings negative sanctions to those who reject him. So we say loudly, there is no blessing in turning your back on God. Warning, a couple weeks ago when we went to George Mason, like warning these people, like don't turn your back on God. There's no blessing there. There's curse. That's it. So, so don't, don't think you can shake your fist at God and expect a nice card in the mail. That's not how the covenant works. God brings ruin to those who hate him. Now, we're close to the end here. <clears throat> the judgment of Christ in the Newer Testament is more than that of the Older Testament. We tend to think that God has loosened his belt a bit in the New Testament. He's not as concerned with sin and covenant breaking anymore. But verses 28 and 29 tell us the opposite. The reality is God's covenant blessing and punishment is ratcheted up in the New Testament. It's not that he loosened it up. He ratcheted it up. God is even more concerned about his covenant judgment because now we're talking about his very own son. Now, the point is clear. Don't go back to the temple and the accompanying sacrifices, which we were talking about the rapture earlier. Um, That's one of the the absolute ridiculous affronts to biblical truth with regard to like a pre-trib, pre-mill belief that Christ has to come back and he has to then preside over the sacrificial system again in the new temple, which he came to destroy and abolish. So that's a different issue, but that's part of it. What this means for us is that we too, we must resist shrinking back from what Christ has called us to. We must resist thinking that the point of the covenant is, for example, church membership. Listen to this absolute fire quote from Dr. R.J. Rushdoony. He says, quote, The covenant was far more than an ecclesiastical membership or a citizenship in a nation. It was a state of grace whereby a man had been given status in God's kingdom to live in his grace and by his law, end quote. So when we circumvent the covenant, we we incur God's purifying judgment. When we shrink back from our responsibilities, remember we talked about you were in a position, there's responsibilities. When we shrink back from that, we fail to get the blessings of the covenant. As priest and king, Christ governs and controls all of human history, and he does all of it according to his purpose and will. 
It's his world. It's his creation. He's the sovereign. He's the one in charge of the covenant. He does all that he pleases. Which means that if if we want to achieve all that Christ has commanded us, we must not truncate or dumb down the covenant. Jesus said that he came to bring a sword, not peace. Which means that his mission objective is to take all apathies, all ambivalencies, all complainers, and all autonomous, lusting covenant breakers, and he wants to cut them with his word, and he cuts them deep. Jesus intends to rule the world with a rod of iron, not a pillow. Jesus is jealous for his name, and he will not accept the church that has turned the covenant inside and out. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because his covenant matters. It matters. His glory matters. His kingdom matters. His enforcement of his covenant matters. God has the audacity to carry out his word. This should concern us. It's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing that God has the audacity to follow through when we don't follow through. So what must we do? Well, we stand on God's word and and do what it says, period, right? We stand on his word and do what it says. No, Caesar, you may not have our children. No, Planned Parenthood, you may not murder our children. We do what it says. No hemming and hawing around. No more excuse making. No more ecclesiastical tyranny. No more abdication of our responsibilities. No more abjurations of what God demands. Just faithful people obeying an ever-faithful God in all areas of life. That's it. This is covenant judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess on behalf of your church here in America that we have done a terrible job at obeying your word. We have insisted on the church being the point instead of your kingdom. We have determined for ourselves that we will do what we want to do and not what you want to do. We have chosen to abdicate our responsibilities for fear of what it might mean for us to have to do the hard work. We repent, therefore, and ask that you would raise up a remnant zealous for your covenant. We also confess on behalf of this nation, which has scorned your word and been decidedly against any sense of morality and virtue, you have dealt with us patiently, and we ask that you would deal with us even more patiently. But don't do it because we said so. Do it because you have a plan and a purpose to make your son famous. Either way, do whatever it takes, God. Do whatever it takes to wake up your sleepy church and awaken covenant breakers and scoffers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Let's celebrate Christ's covenant by coming to the table and grabbing the elements, and we will partake of them together. So come, church, and welcome to Jesus Christ.